I was joking with my wife this morning how I, I always think I don't have enough material and then I kind of do some dry runs and I have way too much. Like today I had, I, went, I was only halfway through and I was like, I only have five minutes left if I don't ad-lib anything, which I always do. So, so I, I kind of determined like, what am I going to take out? And I said, if Pastor Ryan shows up, I'm going to leave in the first part because it gets all super into Reformed Baptist stuff. I even went to like early English books online and was like digging through stuff. It's really cool. I'm going to bring this out later because I know some of y'all will appreciate this as well later. But since he's not here, I'm going to skip it. That way I can keep the Luther diaper scene because I know some of the moms are asking for that. And so uh, I didn't want to skimp out on that. Um, real briefly, I do want to go through this though. What essentially this is, is this is a summary of our own 1689 confession. Context was Keach was trying to teach it at his church and it was out of print, and it was too expensive. So he's like, well, I want to teach. This was about 10 years after the 1689 assembly. So he's like, I want to teach it, but the solution he came to, by, by the time his life was over, he had written 40 books or so. He's just like, well, I'll just, I'll just write a summary, make it more concise, it'll take less pages, thus will cost less, and then we can just go through that as a church. So this is his summary on our 1689's chapter of marriage. Um, it's, again, very pithy, but here it is. We believe marriage is God's holy ordinance, that is to say, between one man and one woman, and that no man ought to have more than one wife at a time. Right? All very standard stuff. This is all things we learned about from the church fathers. I, don't, I, 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 wouldn't, I would argue that throughout church history, no one's disagreed with that. And that believers that marry should marry in the Lord, or such that are believers or godly persons, and that those who do otherwise sin greatly in violating God's holy precept. Essentially, don't be unequally yoked, marry in the Lord. And that ministers as well as others may marry, for marriage is honorable in all. That's it. That's the entire summary. Uh, that last phrase is probably the part where by the time we get to the fourth century when Christianity is legalized, uh, when people start debating that, you know, like no marriage for the clergy, things like that. We saw a lot of that. So um, anyways, that, that was a really cool document I found. And I kind of want to look through it more as we're going through the confession week by week, but I'll leave that for that. So as a quick recap, we've been looking at marriage, divorce, and remarriage throughout church history. In the first early Christianity period, we learned that it was pretty much orthodox. You know, they didn't have a lot of time to wax eloquently on marriage, but they had all the basics. They went to Genesis. They saw it was rooted in God's ordinance, creation ordinance. It's for all people, one man, one woman. Um, and um, that, that, was, that was pretty much it. It was pretty good. Of course, they're fleeing for their lives, so they can't um, argue much more than that. It was when Constantine legalized Christianity in 325 that it started having a little, little bit of, of downturn. About 50 years from this point, people started arguing, actually a little bit before this point and 50 years later, uh, people were arguing like, well, maybe the clerics and those in church office shouldn't get married because it's holier, is it not, to not be married and we want them to be holier. Um, there was a lot of that. We looked at the debates between Jovinian, who was kind of a proto-Luther, like, I'm standing on the word of God, regardless of what, you know, the church at large says. Uh, the Pope declared him a heretic. Ultimately, what he was saying is, is 
whether you're married or not married, you know, whatever calling you're called to, that's what you should do. That's kind of the, the basic text of 1 Corinthians 7, uh, even as Pastor Ryan read it last week and summarized it. Jovinian wrote against him. Uh, he was kind of the one, the Romanist, the Papist, if you will, picked to deal with this heretic. Unfortunately, he wrote more bad than good, and people try to not have his stuff published, but it got out there, and it kind of becomes one of the standards for the next millennia, which is pretty crazy to think about when you think about that, especially in a day and age where information comes to us so fast. Um, contra Jerome and um, Jovinian, St. Augustine tried to have a more balanced approach. He still very much leaned on the side of better to be, you know, some asceticism than, than, than not. But the way he described the three goods of marriage, he said this, these three things, namely offspring, that's having kids, fidelity, being faithful, um, and the sacrament, that is that it's permanent because it's a sign pointing to Christ and the church, are all good. And because of that, marriage is good. So he did, he was a lot better than Jerome, who Jerome could not say marriage was good. He just says it wasn't as bad as fornication. Augustine, a little better. He says, yeah, it is good. Of course, he goes further. He doesn't stop there saying, it is certainly better and holier not to set out to have children physically. Here's kind of like, Argh. and so to keep oneself free from any activity of that kind and to be subject spiritually to only one man, Christ. Therefore, marriage and fornications are not two evils. That's what Jerome was saying, one worse than the other. But marriage and abstinence are two good things, one better than the other. Again, Paul would say, whatever calling you're called to, whatever giftings you have, that's what you should be doing, uh, and that is good, sticking with that. So, As Michael Haken, the church historian, kind of summarizes this, he says, with slight differences of emphasis, these positions of Jerome and Augustine were largely embraced by the various Roman Catholic authors of the Middle Ages. We saw some examples of that last week, kind of a couple hundred years, and they're basically all saying the same thing. So that's why I kind of said, from here we are zooming from, you know, 4th, 5th century all the way to 1517 at the times of the Reformation. As I explained last month, the Reformation wasn't just a kind of rediscovery of the gospel and putting it out there. That was the main thing, justification by faith. It was hugely important, but that had many trickle-down effects because that affected how we dealt with our wives and our husbands and our children and our spouses and how we worked. Uh, they, they truly believed in that principle, soli deo gloria. And they didn't just believe that in the case of our salvation, in that God gets all the glory for our salvation, but they, they, they saw that throughout their entire lives. They believed all of life is to be lived before the glory of God, for the glory of God. Um, our, our work, we work as unto the Lord. That's why we, we, you hear of that Protestant work ethic. Um, and just, I think of so many examples that come up. Uh, it, it really changed the world, uh, this, this view, this Protestant Reformation. You can read secular histories and they will point to the Protestant Reformation over and over of how it really turned the world upside down. Not just in religious views, but how people behaved on a day-to-day -day basis. Last week, we also did look at Luther. Uh, he is a special, fun guy. And we looked at his wife, one of a kind, Katerina. And uh, we looked at their love for each other. We looked at some of their letters back and forth. I, I, I love how, how both of them 
God obviously designed them for each other because Luther had a fiery mouth. He had such sarcasm and she could take it. She could even dish it back out to her. One of the examples I gave, for example, this is um, the end of one of Luther's letters. He writes, now I worry that if you do not stop worrying, the earth will finally swallow us, swallow us up and all the elements will chase us. Is this the way you learn the catechism and the faith? They would, they would have these really playful banters. Like if, if I said that to someone, I would feel like I was being mean or scolding. Like that's not my type of humor and that's not how I talk generally. Um, but Luther and his wife would talk like this. Obviously, they wouldn't just do that. There would be encouragement. The very next sentence, he'll say something like, Pray and let God worry. You have certainly not been commanded to worry about me or yourself. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. As is written in Psalm 55, 22 and many more passages. Your holiness is willing servant, Martin Luther. And quickly, the example I gave last week of Katerina kind of doing this back to Luther. This was after three days, Luther is just super depressed in this total bog of despair for whatever reason. Normally he's playing music, writing hymns, drinking the beer she makes him, a very jolly guy generally, very busy at work. This he's just totally depressed, totally in gloom. She puts on some morning clothes, comes out to Luther, to which Luther says, who's dead? Katie says, God is dead. Luther, what do you mean God is dead? God cannot die. Luther, Luther goes in that pastor teacher mode, like that's incorrect theology. Katie, well, the way you had been acting, I was sure he had. And if I was talking to my wife, I would probably, you know, she's in a depression or something. We, we usually talk to each other a lot more gently. We're kind of like, if I saw her in that pit, that pit of despair, I would kind of gently pull up that rope. Like, it's okay, you're going to make it. Here we go. You know, it might take a couple hours, a couple days. Uh, but Katie's more just like, get up here, get back to work. Stop being a fool. And that worked for Luther. He says at, at that point, he wrote the Vit in his, he carved it in, in his table, which, which says he lives. And whenever he would get down, he would remind himself, like my wife reminded me, God lives. What have I to despair? He is on our side. The victory is his. Um, and this was their, their strange marriage, but um, it, it was a beautiful thing. And um, that's how they rolled. So, um, as we all know, marriage can be tough. There are a lot of things that come into marriage when you have children that adds another dimension to it. There's a lot of challenges that come up and Martin Luther himself experienced those challenges with some of their kids. So here's what Luther talks about when it comes to child rearing. Um, he also does talk about how in marriage, he saw how God used it to teach him patience, not just his wife, but his children. Here's, here's some of his writings um, about his children. Child, what have you done that I should love you so? You have disturbed the whole household with your bawling. This is the sort of thing that has caused the church fathers to vilify marriage. But God before the last day has brought back marriage and the magistracy to their proper esteem. So again, Luther has those such cutting bites. Like I can imagine Luther trying to rock his child to sleep. Maybe the, the child's colicky. You know, any parent you've experienced, the child's just not stopping. He's like, why should I love you? You're disturbing everybody. This is why the church fathers like Jerome said such bad things about marriage. Um, but of course, he always comes back to reality usually and, and says, you know, but God has brought it back in its proper esteem. Um, and it is a good thing. And, and really God used Luther um, in, in mighty ways to do that. One more example of Luther was, was one time when it was probably some, some boys walking down the street or something, and they saw Luther doing, you know, putting up the diapers to hang him out to dry. He was helping his wife, helping his family out. 
And they're apparently mocking him. You know, they're emasculating him, saying that kind of job is best for women. I, we don't know exactly what they said. But Luther, never short on words, has something to say back, or at least to write back as he's thinking about what happened that day. He writes, Now you tell me, when a father goes ahead and washes diapers or performs some other mean task, and if he just means menial, everyday task for his child, and someone ridicules him as an effeminate fool, though that father is acting in the spirit just described and in Christian faith, my dear fellow, you tell me, which of the two is most keenly ridiculing the other? God, with all his angels and creatures, is smiling, not because the father is washing diapers, but because he is doing so in Christian faith. Those who sneer at him and see only the task but not the faith are ridiculing God with all his creatures as the biggest fool on earth. Indeed, they are only ridiculing themselves with all their cleverness. They are nothing but devils, fools. If, when, when, you can, when you can be offended how, that someone's emasculating you for doing the diapers, and, and, and kind of turn that around and be like, wait a second, this is, I'm doing this for God's glory. I'm doing this in Christian faith. This menial task, these mean tasks, these everyday tasks we got to do time and time again, um, they matter. We do all of our work as unto the Lord. And this is, this is truly the soli deo gloria life, doing all to the glory of God. You know, even hanging up your kids' diapers and being laughed at by the teenage punks walking down the street. So, Philip Schaff summarizes it it like this. The domestic life of Luther has far more than a biographical interest. It is one of the factors of modern civilization. Whether Luther's Reformation, without Luther's Reformation, clerical celibacy, with all its risk and evil consequences, might still be the universal law in all Western churches. There would be no married clergymen and clerical families in which the duties and virtues of conjugal, parental, and filial relations could be practiced. Viewed simply as a husband-father and as one of the founders of the clerical family, Luther deserves to be esteemed and honored as one of the greatest benefactors of mankind. And this is just, again, you think of Luther, he just wanted to ease his conscience, ultimately. He wanted to please God. He wanted to get right with God after he figured that out, justification through faith in Christ alone, Christ alone, not his works, but Christ alone. After he saw that freedom, then he just wanted to live his life to the glory of God. And in doing that, he made great changes. God used him mightily. Faithful in small things, rule over much, comes to mind. Um, so it, it really is incredible how simple acts of faith even when Luther is just putting away diapers, um, can have a difference. And, that, and that, that's really something I, I take away from Luther's life, is he always just had his eye on eternity. He looked to his father. He wanted to please him. He didn't care what anyone else thought. He could care less what the papists and, and the, per, the, the children down the street making fun of him thought. He did all to the glory of God. Now, he, probably, he did it a little more crassly than I would, but he still, uh, his heart was there for sure. So this brings us to our next reformer. If Calvin's kind of the pioneer of the Reformation, the one starting the fires, uh, lighting things up and going haywire, uh, kind of the, the bull in the china closet, if you will, Calvin is much more, he's, he's the systematician. He's the one organizing the thought, the reform thought. He takes those flames of Luther and kind of brings them into a more controlled flame. Still, you know, they're also kind of saying the same things, but he's definitely a... Um, 
has a very different mindset. He, he can get harsh with words. You know, back then, it wasn't untypical to have uh, what we might say a strawman nowadays. Uh, th there was a lot of dissing, especially when he talks about the Anabaptist, um, which is funny as we get down the line. But anyways, let's look at John Calvin. Let me give you a real brief biography on him so we can kind of get to know him a little more. So he was born in 1509 in Noyon, France. He died in 1564 in Geneva, Switzerland. That's where we hear about most of his activity in Geneva. By the age of 14, he moved to Paris and was in the university studying and preparing to be a Roman Catholic priest. His family had some really deep ties with Roman Catholics, and that's what he was studying to do. During this time, Luther's writings and other writings were already coming into Paris, and so eventually they're going to make his way into Calvin's hands, and we don't know exactly what he read, um, but he was definitely on par with Luther eventually. By 1527, he began studying law, and it was at this time his dad encouraged him to do that because his dad found out that some of his friends were much more of a reformed mindset, and his family had ties with the Roman church, and so possibly he was doing this to protect himself and the family name, or maybe he didn't want Luther to fail. So, so he encouraged him to study law, which he did. So with this education, Calvin got a, a, a very good classical education when he studied law. He learned much about Greek philosophy. Um, before that time, when he suddenly became a priest, he's inundated in the church fathers. So he knows his theology. He knows what the church fathers taught. He's reading them firsthand. He learns Latin. He's learning Koine Greek because it's part of, the, part of your studies to learn the New Testament. And so I find it interesting how God is preparing him. You know, he's going to become a great scholar for the Christian church, probably one of the most important for Protestantism. And, and God is, if you will, plundering the Egyptians, using all their resources uh, to kind of feed Calvin in this so that he could later write um, and benefit the Protestant church. Really interesting. Um, during this time, some of his friends were giving lectures against the errors, the abuses of the Roman Catholic Church. And at that time in France, they were, they were hunting down is not, not a fair way to put it. They were uh, driving people out of the city who were a part of that, if they had any association with them, if they were supporters of them. At the very least, we know Calvin had associations with these people. And so at this point, Calvin did have to flee. He, he does wind up studying on his own. He eventually starts preaching on his own. And sometime in 1533, this kind of comes based on some of his short comments in his commentary on, on Psalm 33. Unlike, unlike Luther, who writes about every little thing that happens to him, what happened when he was changing diapers, what happens when he was drinking beer with his friends, what happens when he was walking down the hall, um, Calvin hardly talks about himself. It's pretty rare. You usually only find it in letters to close friends. And again, even then, he's usually talking church business or issues going on with the civil magistrates that they're trying to work through. Um, so it is hard to really find a lot of info about Calvin himself. Um, but something happens in 1533, some kind of radical shift. It's, it's both kind of a, a radical mindset change for him. Some people argue it might have been his conversion. But, but at the very least, Calvin says it was stuff he was thinking through a lot, though, for years. But something happened, finally hit um, 1533. He's definitely, I was going to say Calvinistic, but he's definitely reformed at that point. It is um, during this time when he's still kind of traveling around to different cities. He's changing his name multiple times so he can't get found. He's in hiding very much. And actually, that name that you see up there, he changed his name to John Calvin in Latin. And actually, we transliterate that in English to, to John Calvin. But multiple times, he, he had changed his name. 
He finally publishes his Institutes in 1536, kind of while he's still out on the run. It's instantly a bestseller. If you've read the Institutes, you know that he updated that thing throughout the rest of his life until 1560-something, in, in the, the time, 64, until the time he died. He was always updating it. It was his magnum opus text. Uh, it started off just six chapters. You read it now, it's, it's pretty hefty reading. Um, it's not hard reading, though. And the reason he wrote it was very similar to the reason how we got a lot of theology in the first century. It was an apologetic. He was trying to tell the magistrates, I'm, I'm on the run, my friends are on the run, because you guys think we're a cult, you think we're a new religion, but, O oh, king, like he writes it out to the king, I'm here to tell you, actually, this reform religion we're talking about, we're just trying to get back to what the church fathers taught. And all that education he got from the Roman Catholics, the church fathers, he, he quotes the church fathers a ton, and he knows them better than any, any um, medieval scholar knew of at the time. And he shows what we are talking about with justification by faith, with the sovereignty of God, predestination, these types of things. These are not new things. This has always been taught in the church. We just lost our way a little bit through, you know, the last millennia or so. So we are not a new religion. It's really the church that has really gone astray. That's why we wanted to reform it, get it back to its roots. That was the main purpose behind the Institutes. It was kind of dual purpose, really. That's, that's how he addressed it, but he also wanted it to be an introduction for anyone who wanted to know more about the Reformed faith. And like I said, he was a systematician, so it is a proper systematic theology. Um, and it is, again, really good reading. There's so many editions of it now. Um, it's still out. It's still, still a bestseller, and there is a reason it's still survives to this day. It's, just, it's really good. Whenever we go through um, confessions or systematic theologies, you can almost trace it back to how Calvin organized it. It's, um, it's really fascinating. God, God really used his mind and his, those law skills to organize things in certain ways also um, to really benefit Christ's body. So, But we're here trying to look at Calvin's love life. Uh, did he have time? Did he get married? What was up with this guy? Well, he was first and foremost a pastor. When he eventually found his way to Geneva, Geneva was going to be one of those cities that he, he went to. He planned to be there for one day, but he winds up living majority of his life there uh, from that point on. Um, the people of Geneva had knew about him. His reputation always preceded him because he was Calvin who wrote the Institutes. He knew Reformed theology. So he was always asked to preach, become a pastor, uh, wherever he went. And on average, he was preaching about four to five times a week, so about 20 sermons a month. He was extremely busy. I mean, his, his commentaries are excellent. Actually, I, I, mine are in the office. I meant to get one of them because I wanted to look up something on it. But um, anyways, very busy. So what about his love life? Well, according to uh, Michael Haken, some of his friends were asking him these same questions, like, what are you looking for in, in a woman? Let us help you. At the urging of a number of friends, including his close colleague, William Farrell, which is another name you'll, if you study in reform history, you'll hear of Farrell a lot. Calvin had drawn up a list of the attributes he sought in a wife. He was not really concerned with physical beauty, he told Farrell on one occasion. Instead, he was looking for a woman who was chaste, sober-minded, prudent, patient, and able to take care of my health. Now, Calvin did really live life in a lot of pain. 
He suffered from hemorrhoids, oftentimes bleeding a lot, kidney stones, gout, enlarged spleen, heartburn, indigestion, chronic insomnia, and ultimately died of tuberculosis. So he was no stranger to pain. So when he's asking, like, I care about my health, I need someone that can provide me some health care, if you will, um, that was a genuine need concern for him because they're going to have to deal with that because it just I, it comes with the package with Calvin. You're going to have to deal with a lot of my physical pains and whatnot. Um, it's pretty funny. At, at this time, Farrell already had a woman in mind when he had asked Calvin this. We don't know. There's not again. There's not a lot of details in Calvin's life, but it, it turns out Farrell never wound up introducing this woman to him. I don't know if it's because he probably she probably didn't make this this kind of tough list that Calvin had this kind of strict list, um, but. That, that didn't happen. Eventually, Calvin does have to move away from Geneva for a couple years um, with Brewster. And, and when he arrives, Martin Brewster has two women for him. He's like, okay, Calvin, I got two more women for you. They don't wind up working out. Um, the story gets really long. There's two more women that eventually come up in, in 1540s. One was poor. He was a little more attracted to her because he thought the rich one might, might tempt him towards covetousness or that the Roman Catholic Church might view this move of, of Calvin marrying up in society as him, oh, he's just in it for the money and things like that. So he was really weary of that one. Uh, the poor one didn't work out. I mean, at, at one point, he thought one of these, these marriages was gonna work out. He, he was planning a wedding. It was like a month away. It never happened, it fell apart. Some of his courtships fell apart. And he said, He's, he's, he even wrote at times saying, okay, if this courtship falls apart, this will be really embarrassing. And it did fall apart. And he, he got, he even said, he quote, looks very foolish because this just keeps happening to him. Whatever, whatever what it does with Calvin, uh, he could not find anyone. So eventually he, he's deciding to call it quits, like giving up on this finding marriage business. Um, that, that, that rich family finds out one of his engagements falls through and they're again trying to pursue him and he tells Pharrell he's like I'm not going to marry her quote unless the Lord had entirely bereft me of my wits so he was done looking for love then just months later in June of the same year 1540 he again is just I have still not found a bride and I doubt that I'll look for one anymore and I, I did purposely try to find the saddest looking picture of of Calvin there uh, most of his pictures, he looks pretty dour, sometimes a little scoldy, but there he looks, I mean, he has like those really sad puppy dog eyes. Of course, you probably know what's going to happen. He gives up, and then two months later, he's married. He winds up marrying Idolette de Burr, who lived from 1500 to 1549. Her and her first husband came from Strasbourg for gospel freedom. We don't know if they were refugees. This was a, a um, town that took in a lot of refugees. Um, and, and because of that, they, they, though they loved Calvin as a pastor there, they were refugees. They didn't have a lot of money. They could hardly pay him, so he really lived a pretty destitute life. Plus, he had all those, all those elements. Um, again, we, we don't know exactly why they came. They did have some kind of association with the Anabaptists. Um, some histories will argue he was a leader in the Anabaptists. Some will say they just went to their, their church meetings. Either way, we do know that John Stroder Liege John Schroeder, sorry, and Idolette de Burr did wind up um, being excited when they found out Calvin was coming to their town. They went to multiple of his sermons a week, were really fed by him, became personal friends with him, had him over at their house, and it was ultimately Calvin who convinced John Schroeder 
to um, be more of a reformed mindset, you know, leave some of the extreme Anabaptist ways behind. Um, and I, I find that funny because if you read Calvin, usually when people are trying to diss on Calvin, um, one thing they'll bring up is his quotes against Anabaptists. You know, he calls them satanic, and uh, he he doesn't have a lot of patience with them the way Luther has no patience with anyone. Um, but it, it, but it is funny because a, a lot of the histories will say he married, he wound up marrying an Anabaptist though. We don't exactly, I don't think that's fair if histories say that. There's just, there's not enough there to fully say they were Anabaptists. Yeah, they were associated. Were they really? I don't know. I think some histories try to say that to make it sound more dramatic, but I think there's plenty of drama anyways. Anyways, her husband winds up dying of a plague that rolled through the city. It was a disease that typically would just take three days and pass, but it did take him out. This left her with two children and a widow. Because at this time, Calvin was still ministering, and, and she, she saw how Calvin would be exhausted from all this sermon. So she'd prepare meals for him, help him out. And it was really at this point when Calvin's eyes were open to her and like, oh, she meets all my qualifications. Like, I need to pursue this wife. And two months later, they're married. William Farrell, when, when they were talking about this, he, he mentions how he was surprised, well, I should say surprised, but, well, no, he was surprised how she was, quote, actually pretty. And we don't know if it was because William Farrell thought with, with Calvin's kind of, you know, strict list of what he was looking for in a wife, if that could include someone that was pretty, or if someone pretty would be attractive in any way to Calvin. We don't know. I like to think it might be the latter, just because those guys were good friends, and I'm sure they tease each other like that. But, yeah, not a lot of info, but just a little interesting aside. Um, so, again, like I said, she comes into the marriage with two children. She did bear Calvin uh, four children. They all wind up, they were, either, they were either stillborn or died in infancy. None of them made it out of the crib. So Calvin's name was not carried on. And, and the Romanists used this a lot to bash on Calvin. They would say, this is God's judgment because of all the heartache and headache you're giving us. This is what God is doing to you. you know, of course, Calvin could point to someone like Luther and all his kids and, or any of the other reformers. Pharrell himself, he used to be a monk. He was happily married, had kids. He was the one trying to get Calvin in on this marriage thing because it was so great. Um, so we, we know those, those lies from the Romanists aren't... Um, helpful in any way but it's like adding insult to injury just an, another another stressor on on calvin um they were married for eight years idolette winds up dying in 1549 having suffered from illnesses for several years and i did find that interesting as well because when calvin makes his list he's looking for someone to take care of him but it kind of turns around he ultimately winds up taking care of her uh, in, in her latter days especially um, so while there isn't much writing between these two, we don't have love letters kind of like we did between uh, some of these other ones that I want to bring up. And I finally did bring that book. Again, it's just a really little book uh, that has these love letters that kind of inspired this whole study. Um, there are a couple of glimpses we can get into Calvin's life and writing, especially when his wife dies, that we can really see that ardent love that he has for her. For example, in the spring of 1541, one year after they were married, another plague came through the city. Calvin wanted to stay to give aid to the church and the people there, um, but he sent his wife and, and her kids away, and he wrote this to his friend, Pharrell. Day and night, my wife has been constantly in my thoughts, in need of advice, now that she is separated. 
from her husband. We get another small glimpse about one year later, 1542, Calvin wrote to another close friend saying, the Lord has certainly inflicted a severe and bitter wound in the death of our baby son. This was at one of their four children's deaths. But he is himself a father and knows best what is good for his children. Now, at this point, I do want to look at two longer letters that, that Calvin writes just days after her death that I think show a lot of love for her. Uh, Michael Haken summarizes it like this. In the two letters that follow, Calvin gives details of Idolette's death to Verrett and Farrell. Those are close acquaintances and friends of his, close friends of his, I should say, and fellow reformers. His intense grief speaks to his deep love for her. And one sees Calvin's tenderness towards his wife as he tells of his steps to relieve any anxieties she may have had about the future of her children after her death. Such kindness is a model for spouses. So here's Calvin's first letter to uh, Verrett in April 7th, 1549. He writes, quote, Although the death of my wife has been exceedingly painful to me, yet I subdue my grief as well as I can. Friends also are earnest in their duty to me. It might be wished indeed that they could profit me and themselves more. Yet one can scarcely say how much I am supported by their attentions. I think that's a really important part to bring out, just the presence of his friends there. And in another letter, he, he gives a little more detail, saying how they were praying for them and they were reading out encouragements to her. Um, and they were just there for Calvin, helping him, you know, make some food and this or that. It was one less thing Calvin had to think about so he could spend those last hours with his wife. He goes on, But you know well enough how tender or rather soft my mind is. Had not a powerful self-control, therefore, been vouchsafed to me, I could not have borne up so long. And truly, mine is no common source of grief. I have been bereaved of the best companion of my life. Of one who, had it been so ordered, would not only have been the willing sharer of my indigence, that is just the hardship of poverty that they were probably never going to get out of, but even of my death. During her life, she was the faithful helper of my ministry. From her, I never experienced the slightest hindrance. She was never troublesome to me throughout the entire course of her illness. She was more anxious about her children than about herself. That's just that selfless giving that we see in a lot of mothers, right? As I feared these private cares might annoy, annoy her to no purpose, I took occasion on the third day before her death to mention that I would not fail in discharging my duty to her children. Again, we, we see that love. She's not asking Calvin to do anything, but Calvin sees she's troubled, she's anxious by this. Let me see how I can help her. Let, let me let her know I'm going to take care of the kids. You know, these are the two children she brought into the marriage. He said, I'm going to treat them as my own. That way he's, she's not worried. Taking up the matter immediately, this is how she responded to Calvin upon, upon him saying that. She said, I have already committed them to God. When I said that, I was, that that was not to prevent me from caring for them, she replied, I know you will not neglect what you know has been committed to God. And it is when you see how much Calvin wrote and how much he preached and how much he cared for God's people, and his wife obviously saw that day in and day out, even before they were married, she, she said, I committed the children to God, therefore I don't even have to ask my husband. I know because I committed it to God, he will be committed to them. I mean, that's, that's just like, 
whew, that gives me goosebumps. That is, um, that is an incredible love and an incredible faith in your spouse. Four days later, he wrote another letter recalling these events to William Farrell. He gives some details on how their friends had gathered for encouragement to pray. I'm going to kind of skip over that. And, and he talks about th- the same story, like some of the final words he told his wife, taking care of the kids and whatnot. And I'll pick up, the, I'll pick up his letter from there because this one is longer, and it goes through a lot of the ground of that previous letter. So same dialogue happens. She says, I know, I know because I've committed the kids to God, you're committed to them because you commit yourself to whatever is committed to God. At that, Luther responds, her magnanimity was so great that she seemed to have already left the world. About the sixth hour of the day on which she yielded up her soul to the Lord, our brother Borgin addressed some pious words to her. And while he was doing so, she spoke aloud so that all saw her heart was raised far above the world. For these were her words. O glorious resurrection, O God of Abraham and all our fathers, in thee have the faithful trusted during so many past ages, and none of them have trusted in vain. I also will hope. These short sentences were rather ejaculated than distinctly spoken. This did not come from the suggestion of others, but from her own reflections. In other words, this wasn't one of the, you know, related at all to the encouragement Brother Borgen was giving them. This was just something totally different. She just how to get up and, 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 and spew this out, this glory, this praise. And that's why they said it was, it was as if she had already left this world. So that she made it obvious in few words what her own meditations were. I had to go out at six o'clock. Having been removed to another apartment after seven, she immediately began to decline. When she felt her voice suddenly failing her, she said, let us pray, let us pray, all pray for me. I had not returned. She was unable to speak, and her mind seemed to be troubled. I, having spoken a few words about the love of Christ, the hope of eternal life, concerning our married life, and her departure, engaged in prayer. And there, there is another letter where he, he does expound a little more on when he's talking about concerning our marriage, just talking about the bliss he had, the joy it was to be uh, with his wife just those, those short eight years. In full possession of her mind, she both heard the prayer and attended to it. Before eight, she expired so calmly that those present could scarcely distinguish between her life and death. I, at present, control my sorrow so that my duties may not be interfered with. Adieu, brother and very excellent friend. May the Lord Jesus strengthen you by his spirit, and may he support me also under this heavy affliction, which would certainly overcome me, had not he who raises up the prostate, prostrate, strengthens the weak, and refreshes the weary, stretched forth his hands from heaven to me. Salute all the brethren and your whole family. Yours, John Calvin. Indeed, that, as, as Haken says, is really a model of kindness for spouses. Calvin never remarries and lives another 15 years, um, eventually moving back to Geneva, and and again, he winds up taking care of her uh, more, you know, health, health-wise. One interesting thing, the, the only other glimpse we get into his thought life of, of, you know, did he think about her after this point? Several years later, when he's working on the commentary for 
uh, Thessalonians, actually I think this was 10 years later, I thought I wrote the date, I didn't write the date. Um, I think this was 10 years later. In 2 Thessalonians, he wanted to honor Benedict Texter, who was her physician. He was also his physician. There's multiple times that physician helped Calvin when he was ill. Um, but it, this is a really long paragraph he has in his intro in first in Second Thessalonians. That's why I wanted to get the commentary and look to see if my copy had it. Um, but this, this is what he says, that he wanted to honor him because the man wasn't allowing him to pay him any more money. He wasn't allowed to honor him, you know, through enumeration. Like he wanted to kind of give him a tip, like, thank you. Like you were there for my wife in the roughest times. So instead he honors him by saying this, the remembrance besides of my departed wife reminds me daily how much I owe you. Not only because she was frequently through your assistance raised up, and was in one instance restored from a serious and dangerous distemper. But that even in that last disease which took her away from us, you left nothing undone in the way of industry, labor, and effort with a view to her assistance. And so to this day, Calvin tells us, I'm, I'm thinking about her daily. When I think about her daily, I think of you who helped her so much. You're not letting me give you any tips monetarily. So I'm going to honor you and, and, and call you most, ex I think in the intro it says like most excellent, wise, blah, 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 physician. Um, and what's the guy's name? Benedict Texter. Um, and says, this is how I'm going to honor you. And, and it is incredible um, how popular Calvin's writings are. Uh, like, you know, how else would we, would we probably even know of that name? Well, to kind of go full circle, um, I guess at this point, are there any questions? And I've kind of, I haven't gotten into too many theological things. Probably what I'm going to do next month is get more into the views on marriage in Geneva. Because Geneva was kind of in the same way America, you know, the American experiments, trying to do something that had never really been done before. Geneva was kind of an experiment in that Calvin, and Calvin wasn't alone in this, most of the reformers were very much of a, there should not be a distinction between church and state. They should be one. The ministers of God, you no know, preachers are, are, are ministers of God. Well, Romans 13, it says that governments are ministers of God. They need to be working hand in hand. Um, the ministers of God should be enforcing God's law. And so he was able to do that in Geneva. And so they, they have to wind up writing a lot of laws, using a lot of wisdom on, on how to, to deal with a lot of issues of their day. So you get to see a lot theologically of, of how they thought and used wisdom and um, all the principles of scripture to give advice on marriage, um, to judge on marriage. You know, if, if fathers were being too harsh, uh, they had ways of dealing with them even. Um, if kids if kids were being too lax and had ways to deal with that, uh, it's really fascinating read. I'm kind of only barely dipping into it. Actually, I thought about making that this Sunday school, but I was like, I gotta I've gotta save this for later because I need to dig more into it. Um, so if there's no questions. That's kind of where we're gonna go next week, but I do want to round this up and end with um, Calvin and Luther, at least their personal lives for now. Um, as as one book explains of of Katharina Luther. Um, she very much too, just like Idolette, you know, learned from their husbands under, under their teaching and wanted to live that, you know, solely Deo Gloria life. In fact, she at one point says, I've read enough, I've heard enough, I know enough, would to God I lived it. In, in this book, I like how he summarizes the lives of these two women. This is um, Kelman and Ellis. 
He says, quote, such was her testimony to her dying day. Now talking about um, Luther's wife, Caitlin, Katerina. Ill for three months after an accident landed her on her back in a ditch filled with icy water, Katerina died on December 20th, 1550 at age 51. That was just a year difference from um, Calvin's wife. The final words from her lips depict how she lived her entire life. I will stick to Christ as a burr to a top coat. They, they really just clung to Christ, right? Nothing clings rougher than that. Um, that's just a great way to put cling to Christ through all their life, even to their deathbed. The last words of Idolette Calvin and Katerina von Bora Luther each communicate that they were not simply wives of reformers, but more so daughters of the King of Kings. So with that, again, next week, next month, when I do this again, we will uh, stay in this area in Reformation times, really diving into the theology in Geneva. Uh, that's going to be really interesting. Um, that's going to be really interesting. There's some, there's some really interesting stuff there. Because uh, there's like even laws they have on courtship, and um, it's, it's fascinating. When, when, I, when you first talk about it, you might think, this is, this is going to get into like... You know, usually when people talk about patriarchy or the father leading the home, it's a lot of harsh views. He instilled laws to keep fathers from abusing their power. It was, it's really fascinating. There's a, there's a lot of wisdom. You know, whether or not you agree with church or state, obviously I don't. I am Baptist. Baptists are very much opposed to that. Um, but these guys weren't Baptists, and so they were tr- trying to live out their theology. Um, so, you know, I, I commend them for that. But I, I do think we can still learn a lot from how they sought to apply God's law, the principles we see from the Bible, into civil laws. It's really fascinating stuff. So uh, with that, that does conclude us for today. We've got three minutes left. If there's no more questions, I'll go ahead and close us.